Welcome to The People in Keichung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Catherine Wagley and Dan Suez. Catherine Wagley writes about art in Los Angeles, and she has written for the LA Weekly, Carla, and Art News, among many other venues. We talk about power and money so much in the art world without talking about the art, and I love the art. And I love the conversations that art allows us to have, and I want to, and I want to still have those conversations about an artwork and about its its ambitions and its strivings and and its material and what that means. But I also want to do that while acknowledging the layers and complexities of context. Dan Suez is an inorganic chemist who's currently a postdoctoral scholar at UC Davis. Science is actually not that tidy. And really good scientists, I think, like um, artists or people who write about art or, or even just experience art or writing, uh, also embrace these, these complications. Um, and, and that's what they actually work for. They don't, they don't like the tidiness. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record magically repaired. It is. You can listen to The People on Kechung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Now let's get to our conversation with our guests, Catherine Wagley and Dan Suez. Catherine Wagley and Dan Suez, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome, Thank guys. You. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having us. Um, well, let's start with you, Dan, telling us what inorganic chemistry is. Well, um, inorganic chemistry, as opposed to organic chemistry, is um, the study of the elements. So if you look at the periodic table, um, there's 100-something elements. And organic chemistry is primarily concerned with the study of, of carbon. So the, the different roles that carbon plays in life, um, the different, different types of bonding that carbon can take on, and the reactivity. And inorganic chemistry is the study of pretty much everything else. So, um, and, and usually what that means is you're studying the transition metals, so the, the elements that are in the center of the periodic table. And um, the reason why those are really appealing elements to study and the, the complexes that they make is because um, they, can, they can adopt a wide variety of bonding modes. So meaning uh, iron, for example, can, can make two bonds or three bonds or four bonds or six bonds, and it can interchange. And so it's, it's really useful for, for performing chemical reactions because you can make and break bonds really easily. So it so the so so it's a very kind of rich area to study, and yeah. a lot of lot of new elements recently. Is that true? Uh, yeah, they're always kind of being discovered. Um, we've we've pretty much for a while now discovered all of the um, the stable naturally occurring elements, and so most most people, including myself, are are more interested in the sort of older mainstay elements that we've known about forever, like iron and manganese and cobalt. Um, there's just a very select few group of people who are, who are sort of interested in these newer ones. Um, and, and really the, the chemistry of, of those elements that are, that are prevalent throughout life um, and, and enzymes, so like iron is in hemoglobin, for example, um, binds dioxygen. That's a relatively boring reaction, but it does. But um, <laughs> But uh, it does a lot of other, you know, frankly, much more interesting things. 
You know, I, I was just, I don't remember when you decided that inorganic chemistry was <laughs> the way you were going to go. It always made sense to me that you would want to yeah. be on that side where you're kind of figuring out how to make things or think differently about what existed. Yeah, um, that was actually a really formative experience uh, for me uh, when I was deciding this. So this was in college because I had done research in organic chemistry. Um, I even interned at a pharmaceutical company. I did research in physical chemistry, which deals with, um, and I did work in um, relative to or relevant to quantum mechanics and things like that. Um, but I got really inspired by reading the literature from actually this, this man named Christopher Cummins, who's a professor at MIT, where he uh, described in the mid-90s the, the first transition metal complex that cleaved the bond in dinitrogen. So that, that's comprised of about 80% of the air that we breathe. It's, it's one of the most stable elements. It's one of the strongest bonds. And he made this, this transition metal complex that could actually break that bond entirely on its way to ammonia. And so I, I've actually, I, that's what inspired me to study transition metal chemistry. And it's funny because I'm still studying nitrogen fixation and, and hopefully will do in my independent career too. Yeah. Yeah. And now Kit Cummings is somebody you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, he's actually my academic grandfather. So he's my PhD advisor's PhD advisor, uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that so that's where it kind of got started. It was um, late into college, and then on a whim, I decided to do it and and pursue that in graduate school. Yeah. Well, then let's uh, let's connect the two of you because you've been friends for a long time, right? Yes. Since that's high right. school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is, why are the two of you sitting here on this radio show together? What is the common interest that y'all have? I think that. The reason I kind of latched on to Dan early on was that he was asking questions in a way that really excited me. And um, as we kind of moved through, we became closer in college, even though he was on the East Coast and I was in the Midwest. We were talking a lot about literature and art and ideas, and we were reacting to the experiences we were having with professors. and, and, And he wanted to have this kind of... I don't know if meta is the right word, but it was a more outside conversation than a lot of my peers did. Like he was like, we were, we were both so young and we were doing really, I was doing really dumb things and thinking, but I, but I thought, I thought I was, I didn't think I was. And, um, it was great to have him be like, be like analyzing his own behavior and realizing he was interested in, in what there was this, what's the, you were just telling me the Steve Tift story about him, (laughs) his comments he gave you on this paper sophomore year and how formative that was who, who was like, that? yeah he's, he was a professor dan had at williams an english professor because dan was studying chemistry and english and i was studying art yeah i mean so Catherine and i have um a lot of mutual interests in art and literature too and one of the things that um i i studied in college was english i actually majored in that and um it was really challenging for me and uh, uh as Catherine and i we're, we're discussing recently and and now I don't know a decade ago or wherever it was um, uh, I, I submitted some some my final essay to this English class and the professor it was not a good essay and that was not lost on the professor <laughs> and, and he's and he kind of um, he, he took a moment to psychoanalyze me in his comments on the paper <laughs> but it's relevant to this discussion actually um, and he said if, if you'll permit, this isn't verbatim, but 
if you'll permit a personal conjecture, I would, I would guess that you haven't sufficiently transitioned from the tidy empiricism of your studies in the natural sciences <laughs> to the, to the uh, rich complications involved in literary analysis. <laughs> and burn. Okay. Yeah, I know. Like, okay, buddy. Yeah, I know. It was, it was a little offensive. I mean, he was partially right in that I wasn't at that time embracing all the um, wonderful complications in art and literature and things like that, um, that as you get older, I think uh, you start to appreciate. But he was actually wrong about science because science is actually not that tidy. And really good scientists, I think, like um, artists or people who write about art or, or even just experience art or writing, uh, also embrace these, these complications. Um, and, and that's what they actually work for. They don't, they don't like the tidiness. Um, I mean, some people do, but that's not me and not, not the, the, the sort of subfield of inorganic chemistry, I would say. They like surprises. They like surprises. Um, they like when, when things don't make sense, that's when you dig in, not when you... Yeah, that's where you do the work, right? That's where you do the work, for yeah. sure. And, and sometimes you actually um, seek out those things. So when I was in graduate school... I, um, I, I did synthetic chemistry where you make things just because you think they're cool. And luckily you have funding to do that. Not everyone does. I was very blessed um, in, my, in my lab in graduate school. And, and you make things because you think they'll be surprising. You don't necessarily know how they will be surprising and what properties will be surprising. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's sort of a creative endeavor. And so I think I, I like that... Um, that criticism that I got from in sophomore year of college or whatever, uh, because uh, it's been illuminating for me since then that he, he missed out on, on some things. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's something that we've both been interested for a long in for a long time is this sort of I I don't know the the tendency to make these clean distinctions like science is this way, literature is this way. Here's the problem is that you don't understand these differences between these fields and I think and I think part of our friendship is kind of genre defying is is that we're, we're working in these very different fields and and the truth is I, I Dan's explained his research many times to me and every time he explains it to me I think I understand what he's doing and then I don't <laughs> retain any of it but what I do retain is that you know he's interested in like the structure of of these things at a molecular level and and the structure of the stories that get told about them and how to how you know the how meaning is made from these things and how you can change that story by changing both the way you think about how these things work and also by figuring out how to change them to build them differently or to yeah absolutely and i mean that's you know obviously really related to your work um a lot of your investigative work um uh how uh, how you're really interested in how narratives about culture, whether it be in art or religion or writing or mm -hmm. whatever, are formed, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I think about those connections, but I, but Dan, somebody I want to tell these stories to, <laughs> often, like to tell you about the this investigation I'm doing with the Schindler Church, or yeah, exactly. Tell us about that. Yeah. What is the Schindler Church thing? Well, I was, um, the, the, Rudolf Schindler built a church on Compton in the 1940s for a, for a congregation that probably didn't have much income. They never paid him for it fully. Um, and it's the only church he ever built. And 
it's a, it's a beautiful building and it's it's in it's footnoted in history books and there's you can find you know evidence that exists Esther McCoy wrote about it when she wrote about working with Schindler um but it was around around 2009 it was finally entered into it became a historical a building on the historical registry and um and it, there's a little more media attention around it um and it's a and that media attention was very much a rediscovery narrative like there was a there was a getty researcher who rode by on his bike and was like i recognize this from pictures and then and then people are like oh, oh the abandoned schindler church as, where, as if it had been lost forever, as if it had been lost it. forever and then um it was sold on by the city for back taxes and some investors bought it up and they put it on the put it up for lease and a pastor named melvin ashley was walking by and he was like, oh, I've wanted to have a ministry in this neighborhood. Here's a building. And he leased it with the intention to buy. So he paid 17500 initially. Um, and then again, there was some excitement because it was open to the public again. And Brendan Raverhill, the designer, donated some beautiful light fixtures and some architecture bloggers and wrote about it. And Francis Anderson did a piece on KCRW. And then um, and I went to the service, and it was, it was great. And... Um, and also, it was nostalgically great for me because I'm the daughter of a minister who had a very unconventional approach to to um, performing a service, I guess. Um, and and then a ye- less than a year out, probably the the building went on the market for 1.8 million, being sold by Crosby Doe and Associates, who do Lautner houses and Frank Lloyd Wright houses, and. And um, I was like, oh, crap, like Melvin Ashley can't buy that. And I called mm-hmm. him and he was he was he was really um, impassioned. And he was talking about a David and Goliath story. And he was getting he was trying to he um, gotten the services of a volunteer lawyer to help him figure out how to navigate this. And 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 eventually Melvin Ashley just kind of disappears and stops responding to my emails. And I. Um, and then Tom Solomon does a Robert Berry show in the church. And you start, and in the press, it's just like, like there was a curved LA story that said it's been a very long time since this church was used for its original purpose. And I'm like, no, it was just a few months ago. <laughs> like, and so, so then I started digging into the um, property records and trying to figure out what the story really was. Hmm. Just thinking initially that just Melvin Ashley versus. Um, historical monuments and the, the narrative about important architecture in Los Angeles would be interesting. But what I found was much more complicated that the church had actually been stolen through a real estate fraud. And that's why it was ever bought for back taxes. And it was stolen from a woman who just didn't have the resources to fight legally to get it back, but had cared for it over the years. And wow. so yeah, I just wanted to tell that story because I, I was afraid we would never tell it. We'd get this story in history books of an abandoned building that was then discovered and bought by people who knew how to preserve great architecture in Los Angeles. How did you get involved in this question originally? What what sparked your interest in this? You mean the question about the church? Yeah, exactly. The, the specific. I think that, I mean, I think it was emotional. I think that I um, I spent time growing up in congregations that were barely holding it together but had a really beautiful vision for what they could be and it was exciting to see 
um, a building that was so non-hierarchical in its in its architecture be occupied by this energy, by this community of people, and um, I, and I also know that the high art world, as I know it, doesn't often value that version of energy and community and um, pop up congregations um Mm -hmm. and and i and i i wanted that i guess i wanted that experience to not be something i only fleetingly encountered um but but then it became more involved once i started researching you're listening to the people on kchung 1630 a.m we'll return to our conversation with Catherine wagley and dan suez in a few minutes but first Let's listen to a new installment of Notes from the People. This episode and our Notes from the People were featuring a piece by the writer Divya Victor. Her book Unsub is available from Insert Blanc Press, and you can find out more about her work at DiviaVictor.com. That's D-I-V-Y-A-V-I-C-T-O-R.com. The piece she'll be reading here, Paper Boats, is from her forthcoming book Kith, which will be available in 2017 from Fence Books. Paper boats. A catamaran is a yacht or other boat with twin hulls in parallel. The word is received from the 17th century Tamil, kattumaram, which literally means tied wood. Go to a place with no water and drink. Go to a place with no trees and find shade. Go to a place with no bodies and find yours buried there. Zero zero A. This is the front of your body. You may use any kind of body to fold into this boat, this catamaran. I am using a typical body with slightly different color for front and backs of the boat. I am using anything I can find around the house that looks like my body or yours. Zero, zero, B. This is the back of your body. Start with the back of your body facing up. Fold the arms towards the chest along the axis of your spine. Draw tight the skin and press down using your thumbs to make creases on your skin. Zero, zero, 001 This is your body facing backward. This is your face placed on the ground. Zero, zero, two. Fold yourself in half, taking care to keep your spine from curving under the strain of the turn. Zero, zero, three. Now unfold and 
press back your body to the ground or flat against a wall or flat against a car against the ground. Ask another body to press against yours to achieve the necessary flatness before moving on, before moving on, before proceeding to fold again. Now, strip from your body everything that will stop it from lying absolutely flat. Zero, zero, 004 Crease your body across your chest, creating an axis from your right palm to your left foot. Touch your palm to your foot and hold your breath as your thumb presses down on any skin bubbling at the corners. Face the ground until your hands have pressed you flat, taking care to ensure that no extraneous skin or flesh leaves the edges or exceeds the boundaries of the boat you are making. Zero, zero. Build a boat with twin hulls. One hull pointed east, one hull pointed west. Now build a body that can sail this boat. Now find the wind that can carry us home. Now find the wind that can carry us home. Now let's return to our conversation with Catherine Wagley and Dan Suez. It was interesting, Catherine, that you were talking about um, um, these ways, this, these impulses that we all have to um, make these simple narratives, such as what happened with this Schindler church. Um, and what's interesting is that in, in chemistry, that's actually the, the job of the field of chemistry is to take extremely complicated um, uh, phenomena on a, on a level that you can't see. It's a sub-microscopic level and, and to, to make sense of it, to, to put some sort of often visual language to that. And, um, one of the things that you do is you're, is you're constructing this, this simple way of understanding these natural phenomena. Uh, and then you always have to be questioning it and expanding it and making new, um, new theories uh, to, to support uh, what, what comes naturally or what, what, what's in nature. Um, so, so like bonding theory is, is one such thing. And, um, and what I did in my PhD, a little bit less so what I'm doing now, is to make new things that, um, that don't actually fit in with the uh, common theories of bonding, mm -hmm. for example. So things that um, if you try to represent them on paper via stick drawings like you do in college chemistry, even high school chemistry, um, they don't really make sense anymore. They, they raise more questions than they answer. Um, and, and, and so there's a lot of people, and that's really the, one of the primary jobs that inorganic chemists do, is to, um, is to, make, is to make molecules that expand our knowledge and question it. But it's always your job to come back and to make and to um, uh, create this simplified picture of right. things too. And I'm I'm curious. Do you find that certain new narratives are 
easily embraced by your field and certain new narratives are are resisted? And do you have to learn how to couch your narrative in a way that feels like progress? Or you were talking, you're on the job search right yeah. now, and you're talking about people thinking that your research is the future of chemistry or thinking yeah. that it's not the future of chemistry. Yeah, no, it, that's a great question. I mean, it's really complicated because you don't want to seem wacky or zany. Um, but that's actually the stuff that I like most in chemistry. So, I mean, I think what the the fine line that people um, have to walk is you have to um, be experimentally very sound and technically very sound and really rigorous. And if you do that, um, people can't deny that you've done something new or done something interesting. Or maybe you haven't. Most often you haven't. It's really right. hard to do something new and interesting. Uh, and, and so there is a lot of resistance, though, I think. And um, and it's something you have to deal with. And that's, and that's mostly with publishing, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, when we publish, it goes through a peer review process, an anonymous peer review process. So you can't. Um, you, your, your science will never get out there unless it's published. So it has to be something that an editor, a journal, and two to four anonymous peer reviewers um, think is sound, but also interesting. And so you're always trying to walk that line. You know, I would say in what I did in graduate school and what I do now, you, you tend to have to be a little bit more conservative than you want to be. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably true for any field, um, mm -hmm. you know, any, any discipline in which you write. You, maybe you find the same thing, maybe not. I don't know. The conservatism changes, I think, depending on the venue. But I, I do find it really hard to to tell the stories I want to tell in in publications that will get that will get them out in the world with yeah, exactly that have enough circulation or or to figure out how to couch them in a way that seems exciting and marketable to an editor. Yeah, um, absolutely. You have a tight relationship with an editor in that regard, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe yeah. we should, we're, we're kind of encroaching yeah. on this, but maybe we should talk about the, the business end of both of y'all's practices, because I know, I mean, I know about the business end of the art mm -hmm. world. That's that's a thing. And, and, and also chemistry, you mentioned you interned at a pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Like, and I know that the space race and shipping, like, has a, a big interest in chemistry, right? Because to make lighter materials... Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a bit far removed from from what I do. I mean, I do mostly just academic work, um, which and I think the best academics actually can uh, bridge applications and um, discovery of new materials and maybe cures for diseases and things like that. But I, I I work mostly in the really academic side, and so the products of my research are papers and presentations that I give primarily. So it's really like trying to communicate, uh, you know, I'm not trying to take myself too seriously, but, you know, mm -hmm. trying to communicate new knowledge and, and yeah. things like that. So really it's the publications. And we've talked, I mean, I read, I read Dan's papers, even though I don't totally understand them, but what I do understand is like the, the structures of sentences and, and, um, th this kind of dance between professionalism and edginess that you're always trying to figure out how to do in a voice that's, and your papers are always co-authored. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. So the, the structure for academic research, it's it's pretty interesting. It's a little weird. Um, it There's a principal investigator in a lab who secures, who does most of the job in securing funding because it's very expensive to do this research. And, um, and in that lab, there are graduate students and maybe undergraduates. 
and postdoctoral fellows, and, and, and they actually uh, execute research that's related to the research that goes on in the lab. But it's, it's your own project, and, and you, know, you write your own papers. Um, but you, you work with other people in the lab, sort of like a cooperative in that regard. And your, um, the principal investigator, your advisor, is always on the paper too, and is usually what we call the corresponding author. So mm -hmm. if someone else reads the paper and they disagree with it or they want to know more or they really like it, they'll usually contact the corresponding author. Um, so there's a lot of um, formalities, or and I would say a, a high degree of formalism with respect to publishing there, yeah. And how, how do those sorts of problems play out in writing and art writing for you, Catherine? The formal problems or the... Sure, or that dance between edginess and, and you know, publishability. Uh, yeah, I'm learning how to, t which stories can be told in which venues, and that's been, for a long time I was mainly writing for the LA Weekly, and then I started to learn that there were certain stories that were write for the editorial vision of the LA Weekly, which has changed since I've been there, and certain stories that I just can't tell the way I want to there. And I've gotten better over the years at trying to find homes for my work and trying to figure out, you know, you know what I mean? There are, there are art magazines who, will, who are interested in, you, you can tell edgy stories there if they're about the right galleries or the right artists. Um, and there are some art magazines where you can't tell edgy stories if they're about the right galleries and the right artists because they're afraid of alienating. Right. And so, so I've, I'm still learning, but I've gotten better at figuring out how to get the stories I want out in the world out. Um, and there's even like um, on a more basic level, just restrictions in terms of format, right? Right, right, right. When I wrote, I wrote a piece about art and practice when they opened um, with the Charles Gaines show last year. And I, I had wanted, to, I'd gone down to write a review of the Charles Gaines show and I'd spent some time in the neighborhood and I wasn't sure how that breed of conceptualism would read in that community where there was a long history of um, community arts and um, the Pan-African People's Orchestra right. had had a base there for a long time. And I knew these, I'd met some of these guys and, and fewer women and I was curious, and so I thought, well, I, I need to do some talking to the community in order to review this show in a way that feels in touch with its context. And in doing that, I started uncovering more complexities than I anticipated. And I'd wanted to write about the Charles Gaines show and incorporate some investigative reporting into an art review. And I just couldn't do that at the LA Weekly. Like they were like, once it became investigative, it had to be more of a news piece. And I, in the end, I didn't. I, I, I have so many drafts of that where I where I start with talking about the art and in the end those just couldn't fly in that context but I wrote a different piece for Carla that that explored the art yeah and I mean I, I had similar experiences too with um, my favorite paper that I wrote in graduate school uh, I, it, it, I think it's the most interesting thing that I've written but it's also the one that I have the most regrets about um, I submitted it to a, a good journal that has a four-page limit, and so I said very little of what I really wanted to say about mm -hmm. it, and I have these long drafts, you know, they're like yeah. 20 pages long, and I ended up incorporating it into my thesis, which is great, which no one reads. You, know, mm -hmm. you write a 200, 300-page thesis, and nobody <laughs> reads it except your mom. And, <laughs> and, you I know, read parts. <laughs> you read parts, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so there, there were similar things there, too. Um, 
that that I was able to get out there, but I, I I regretfully didn't put out in the literature. Yeah, I don't know. That's it's hard to figure out how. To, I mean, we were talking about this telling stories. That that's so much. Being able to tell a story is and to and to format it and structure it and to get the right content in is a big part of being able to do the kind of work we want to do which for me is about having conversations about art that are a little more complicated and messy than the ones I'm encountering we I, I mean not to say there aren't other people making yeah, exactly. stories messy in the way that that I want them to be but but it's but it's very but it's skills based like that's what I, I was there were early on I was talking to lots of other art writers and I was like we have such amazing conversations and the copy is so standard <laughs> right and it took me a long time to learn how to begin to make copy that's not a standard and I'm still learning I'm not I'm not always good at it still but well, it's been fun for me to read your work over the years I'm mean, even through college you'd send me stuff and and how it's changing so rapidly still mm-hmm. um, how do you think it's changing if you were to analyze yourself I think I'm getting better at articulating the power dynamics I'm perceiving I'm getting better at I guess exactly what I want to do I want to write about art in a way that acknowledges um the structures that allow it to exist and and the way i don't want to write about a show ever really without acknowledging that this gallery is showing these artists for this Mm -hmm. reason even if even if it's just a subtle reference um i'm getting better at but i also don't want to all be we talk about power and money so much in the art world without talking about the art and i love the art and i love the conversations that art allows us to have and I want to and I want to still have those conversations um about an artwork and about its its ambitions and its and its strivings and and its material and what that means but I also want to do that while acknowledging the layers and complexities of context and I'm getting better at that I think I hope You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio in the iTunes store. Uh, When you're there, please subscribe to the show, rate, and leave us a review. That would be great. And we're hosted by Interblanc Press. And to find out more, you can go to interblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Now let's get back to our conversation with Catherine Wagley and Dan Suez. So we were talking about um, kind of an edginess in the writing or whether it be for, you know, a science audience or an art audience. And exactly, I want to know about what you guys are thinking about when you're thinking about your audience in respect to that kind of edginess. Yeah, well, um, I I think uh, people, at least in inorganic chemistry, really want to be excited by new things um, and... uh, new ways of looking at things and also maintain a really critical eye uh, at the same time. So I, I think people are relatively, can, you know, can be relatively receptive. And again, this, this goes back to the, the peer review process where you have to get your work published. And so you have to, have to walk that fine line. Um, what do you think, Catherine? I think that, I mean, I think it's really hard because I think I think a lot about the way in which edginess works in terms of being 
relating to the art establishment or art historical narratives that are that have become canonical. Um, and I think the part of the reason I want to upend those, though, or challenge them, or just be really self-critical about the ways in which they've I've, they're kind of naturally embedded into my consciousness because of my art education is a because I want the narrative and the conversation around art to be a little less insular and to be more open to people who are curious about ideas and about thinking about experience differently, which is an opportunity, I think, um, art, conceptual art, contemporary art, historical art offers in a way that, in a different way than many other fields or genres of creative expression do. Um, but I, I don't know, like I was, I just wrote a piece for Momus last year, I think it was out in December that I thought a lot about and it was about um, my own personal biases and my own personal friendships and how they affect the way I write about art. And, and that was spurred partly because of my anxiety this last year about identifying, I've become friends with so many more artists or become so much more in the know so I'm not writing about things from an outsider perspective, but I'm also often not identifying the ways in which my closeness to these worlds or to these people could potentially affect my interpretation. And then I just I just got really deep into digging through um, back to Clement Greenberg and looking at his biases and his friendships and the ways in which he often did not acknowledge them, and did how Clement those Greenberg have biases. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, there's this. He he was dating um, Helen Frankenthaler when he brought Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland over to her studio to show them her work. And then later in his essay on um, color or post painterly, he didn't call it color field. He called it post painterly abstraction. He talks about how Helen Frankenthaler was the forerunner because of her influence on Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland. <laughs> Um, and does not identify either his relationship with any of them, nor the fact that he introduced them to each other and then created a narrative of influence based on that introdu- that one introductory session. Um, and and I I was I was being really I was examining my own work in that way partly because I wanted to. I mean, you the work the art becomes very exclusive if the people who know that Clement Greenberg and Helen Frankenthaler were dating have a very different access to the story of art history than the people who don't mm-hmm. I don't know that's problematic um, and I want I want more access to those nuances and complications right in the same way that people who are not in the art world but are interested in it or not in it as much as say you are yeah or the rest of us maybe like they they don't really have a full understanding of like how how uh, is it nepotistic or mm-hmm. incestuous? I don't know what the right word yeah. is, but it's some combination of those two with a lot of money piled on top right. of it. You know, like not everyone really understands the extent of that sort of thing. And I think when I first started writing, I thought I could avoid that incestuousness. I could not become party to it or not become infected by it. And then when I realized I was totally okay. in it, and I was totally conflicted by my own friendships and was becoming friends with people because I'd written about their art and enjoyed the conversation and wanted more. I wanted to try to figure out how I could make that incestuousness more transparent. Right. And not um, try and not try to eliminate it or ignore it, but just to acknowledge it at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I write papers, 
my goal is that if someone were to pick up the paper who's not totally familiar with the area or the topic and, and they can pick it up and and get a cogent discussion and get caught up to speed or at least know where to start then con to continue reading mm -hmm. and so every time you write a paper even if it has new results say what you're what you're also doing is kind of rewriting or slightly modifying the history of the field or the history of the topic or whatever and you have to be really mindful of that because if you codify something that's um, uh, 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 maybe not true or or is an assumption um, you know say that person a made some discovery and it was exclusive to them or something that's dangerous and so every time you write a paper uh, you really have a, a an opportunity to um, to even if, if only slightly adjust the narrative about the topic and so I, I actually really look forward to that when I write papers but it's really hard you have to be yeah. you know tons of research and very scholarly about it as, as best you can yeah. right well, in science, like science writing in general, in my limited knowledge, is always going to be pretty highly referential. I mean, you're basing your work on the work of many others, oh, right? Of absolutely. course. So in a way, it's like that historical narrative and all those connections are built into science writing, but at the same time might be as opaque in some ways, you know, to yeah. the outsider as and art writing. Even and just omitting a single reference yeah. in your would paper, though. get you in trouble. It right? would get you yeah. in trouble if people notice it. And if people don't notice it, it actually changes um, how people think about the field. Right. And that's, you know, so it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And that idea of that sort of ex exclusion or whatever, like being dangerous, like in science, somehow that makes more sense to me because, I don't know, you're working on possibly rockets and medicine and like planets. Oh, so. I'm blushing. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, it, but it's, as far as the construction of the historical narrative, like that's, it's equally as dangerous in art writing, exactly. right? I mean, it, you do an important piece of art writing that like Clement Greenberg, who mm -hmm. manipulates a historical narrative and people have a wrong headed idea about how shit went down for decades, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's that, that back to that Frank and Thaler, Morris and, Lewis and Nolan example like when I started investigating it I just started looking at all the references to that moment of influence in art reviews in Roberta Smith's writing and like it's just it's just everywhere like that one essay has become the story we tell about mm -hmm. the emergence of a certain moment in art and um it's terrifying are there moments <laughs> uh, is there a, an a, example of a moment like that in the, in the, in science, where someone has deliberately or unconsciously excluded or included something that wasn't appropriate or not right, and it's it's done some serious damage. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how serious the damage was, but um, in terms of scholarship, uh, it does happen. And and you know, frankly, if if you realize that there's an omission in your paper, um, uh, you have the opportunity to submit additions and corrections to your paper. And those are taken pretty seriously. And, you know, maybe some people, I've never had to do it. And maybe some people are embarrassed by that. But yeah. but uh, every week in the journals, you'll see additions and corrections f for that exact purpose. Yeah. We need a thing like, like that for the art world. <laughs> yeah. that, some journals even allow people, that? yeah, even allow uh, letters to, to disagree with mm -hmm. findings or even, even just um, um, the historical... Um, a positioning of a result or a paper yeah are, are additions and corrections to and if you're submitting that to a science journal is that like a kind of a, an admission of whoops it can be i mean it depends how or, you, yeah 
It kind of yeah. It I think it is. Good, it could be a good thing too. Yeah, or I think it's a whoops, and I think it's a good thing. You should absolutely yeah. do it. I mean, if I mm-hmm. ever find myself in that circumstance, I'll I'll absolutely uh, try to correct that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're on the record. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were talking um, earlier today about the well the the ways in which career ambition or um wanting to satisfy the requirements or wanting to be published in a certain journal or wanting to be noticed by a certain group of peers affects the science that gets done and talked about yeah it's it's really that's a really big issue and it's very interesting so um uh, in in science and say chemistry, um, you submit to a, a whole variety of journals, but there are certain so-called elite journals, and there's just a few of them. Science and Nature are the two most elite journals, I would say, um, and they take a certain format of paper, and they're supposed to be highly impactful and written for a general audience. Um, and so, and and there are many good papers that are published in those journals, but if but the the um, and I've been lucky enough to publish in, in, in one of those journals too. But, um, uh, but, but realistically, the results that go in those journals and the way that you have to write the paper uh, typically involves a lot of compromising. Uh, and um, so, and I, there are many examples where the resulting product, because the product isn't the science of the results, it's actually the paper that you write. And the resulting product is is uh, not nearly as good as the or interesting as the results um, that they represent. And if it had just been written for a different journal, um, then then they might have been a, a better paper or a better product. And, and mm-hmm. there's tremendous uh, pressure uh, to write in these, these so-called high-impact journals, for sure. And I'm sure it's the same, or I imagine it's the same for you. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's a lot of art writing that's done to be noticed by the art world or to participate in the art world. Um, and that's something I've always not wanted to do, but sometimes it's hard not to. And also, um, you know, I mean, it's hard to make a living as an art writer and, and being embraced by or funded by the art world in Mm -hmm. some way is appealing if you can, if you can figure out how to do it. Um, but also, I think that you have, and we were talking about the people who, how I was lucky enough that my neighbor, who's from Jamaica, named Barbara, noticed, like, one day I was leaving the gate, and she was like, you write really beautifully. I read what you wrote about Le Merit Park, and that's so rare. Like, usually yeah. the people that respond to you are people who are in your field, who are in your world, yeah. and so you start to think of them as your audience. Well, I feel like we have two more hours worth of this, but we're out of time so Catherine and Dan thank you so much for thank joining you. us thank, thank you guys you. thank you guys so much you've been listening to The People on K-Chunk 1630 AM our theme music as always is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller you can find us on iTunes by searching the iTunes store for The People Radio when you're there please take the time to subscribe to the show leave us a rating and if you're real nice leave us a review and you can find us on all other podcasting apps such as Stitcher you can also find us on SoundCloud And you can find and like us on Facebook. We're going to go out with a piece by Los Angeles artist and musician Corey Fogel. You can find more of Corey's work at knitdrums.tumblr.com. That's K-N-I-T drums.tumblr.com. 
and the piece was recorded live at the Center for the Arts Eagle Rock on May 3rd, 2014, as part of the Terra Firma Art Show. <laughs> 